You're listening to New Security Broadcast from the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program. I'm Angus Soderberg here with Claire Doyle, and today's episode is part of a special podcast series called The Arc, which looks at the different ways climate change interacts with social inequity and how our responses are an opportunity to build a more just and livable future for all. In this episode, Claire and I have the pleasure of speaking with Joni Babiri, who is co-founder of Girls for Climate Action, an organization that is working to put young women and girls at the forefront of climate action in Uganda. Beyond Girls for Climate Action, Juanita is involved with the UN Women Youth Action Coalition and is an ambassador at the Africa Youth Climate Hub. And she's the academy lead at Start Hub Africa, where she's training student entrepreneurs to launch initiatives across Uganda. In 2019, Juanita was a recipient of the Leo Africa Institute's Fellowship for the Young and Emerging Leaders Project, which empowers leaders to make meaningful change in their local communities. Thanks so much, Juanita, for joining us on the podcast. Uh, It's really such a privilege to have you here. Thank you. To kick things off, I'd love to hear about the inspiration behind your really deep engagement with climate issues and then, you know, how that's informed your journey as a climate leader. So, for instance, how it inspired you to co-found Girls for Climate Action. Thank you so much. So just to get right into on why Girls for Climate Action and also part of my experience um, with climate disaster. So in 2016, we we really faced a lot of issues. One was there's a lot of flooding uh, because we stay near a wetland, but this is like the... um, is demarcated as not a wetland because there's where the wetland stops and then that is where my 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 mother's of parents house that and this is where I grew up um in Jinja Uganda and over time we've seen that we saw that so many houses were being built in this wetland and what happened is that every time it rained heavily with all these changing climates we had a lot of flooding in that most of the times we could uh, stay awake to not go with the floods. Most of the rains would come in the night and whoever was in the house already, because most times my father was not in the house by the time the flood happened. One was because he's gone out to drink with his friends, uh, but also two, um, he had a job that was really not uh, near our home. And so he could stay there for, he could sleep there sometimes until the weekend. And so all in all this, I, I really saw that my mother was the one taking a, a central role in trying to make sure that the children don't go with the rain and and making sure that tomorrow comes in a way. And uh, my mother uh, is, is the secretary at, at one of the local offices, local government offices. And all of this time, she was supposed to actually go to work the following day, but she left us to sleep and then at the end of the day, at the end of the night, she did not get any sleep. And so in the morning, she had to go for work. If anything was destroyed through the night, me and, and my mother and all my sisters had to do a lot of cleanup before we left for school. Um, fortunately, if your uniform is still in a good state and wasn't taken by the rain, then you have something to put on. And so this is where, for me, um, my activism started. And so me and other girls in the community realized the importance of trying to stop investors in taking over the wetland. 
but we couldn't do this because we 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 were just girls that are trying to do things that are trying to push government that are trying to push investors away and for us this is where um girls for climate how girls for climate uh, action started and also um in that same time there's a lot of drought that was happening uh, it's another also story my dad also had a garden that that could not yield a lot um during these droughts and so all of this brought a bit of positive anger it's how i call it like positive anger to make sure we do something about environment and so there's there was less climate education there was less climate awareness and so we started doing this one because we wanted to to chase away the people that are in the wetlands but also try to make um, everyone aware of what's happening and uh, how was it could become so this is how girls for climate action started with a group of nine girls advocating for climate justice but centering our realities and experiences that we're going through at that time at the center of all the work that we are doing at the moment so since then girls for climate action has grown into different communities in uganda but also now um, a few communities in kenya trying to push for climate justice uh, engaging communities uh, creating new advocates etc yeah that framing of positive anger is really powerful in hearing you speak about the experiences of you and your mom and other girls in the community, I'm curious to hear more about how you see women in Uganda generally being impacted by climate change, and then maybe link to that how women can be change agents in the climate space. So, you know, how do you see the link between gender inequality, gender norms, um, and women's unique experience with climate change playing out in Uganda? Yeah, um, so in our patriarchal system, we know that uh, there are so many roles that have been attached to the women in regards to house chores, in, in regards to taking care of children, uh, food gatherers, etc. that surround building a home. What we call here, you know, a woman is the one supposed to build a home. But you saying a woman is supposed to build a home comes with so many other roles that um that are now actually uh too much affected by climate change. One um in my community, women are not owning land, but also women are expected to provide food for the home, and the and the males are supposed to be the ones going into um commercial farming. They go to do agriculture, but to sell. But a woman is supposed to take care of the home but also use the small pieces of land that they have been given by the husbands not even given they have be, they have been lent to by the husband to provide food for food for the home so in in many of the communities that most of the women that you work with if the husband is owning like three acres of land the woman has less than that could be like 30 by 30 as what they have to work with and this means that women are using this particular land one, to provide food for the family, but also we've seen that most of them are actually using this small piece of land to sell some of the vegetables so that they can take the child to school. So in, in cases where the, where um, men are owning these commercial pieces of land, women are not even aware where the men are taking this money, you know? They're not even taking children to school. When it comes to health services, they're not taking the children to hospital, etc. And the woman has all these uh, responsibilities to do this. And so um, when whenever we do our programs, we try to map out uh, the different roles and responsibilities that women have against the roles that men have. 
And you would really be surprised on how many roles a woman has in a day and how many roles a man has in a day. One, most of these are roles that are attached to the environment. For example, the woman has to get up um, very early in the morning to, to prepare, for example, breakfast for the for the man before he wakes up. So in, in this case, she's using water. In this case, she needs food. In this case, she needs energy, right? So that is why for us, the, the, the concept is around how do we make sure that women have the capacity to one, do not feel inconvenienced in providing for, for their families. And so that is why we do the different programs we do. But to also get into what we see as most of the impacts of climate change on, on women in rural communities that we work with. I would just maybe say, fast forward, the first time we did our climate education in communities was with my community, and they had an attachment to what the problem is, you know, because there was flooding and they could see it. All they wanted is a solution. Now, you have to do a solution as well as you advocate at a, at a local level with policy and etc. But when we went into other communities, the problems were there, but women or communities felt that this is not the problem. For us, the problem, the urgent problem is poverty. But you see that most of these communities are dependent on agriculture. But because they do not know, for them, it's more of, I don't have food, I don't have water, I don't have fire to cook my food. That's my problem. So you get into understanding also where they're coming from in regards to what is necessary for me at the moment, looking at the short time. So we tried as much as possible to connect how uh, we see them being affected and how we can actually bring them into uh, creating solutions. For example, most women were spending a lot of time in one looking for water, looking for firewood, for cooking, and yet they would really be involved in other economic activities that they can gain even more from or, you know, kind of become independent. Um, and that is why we are doing the programs we do that I can tell you later on. Um, and so we see them affected. And um, when a man comes back home and they do not find any food, they'll really um, have to blame the woman for not getting food. And that is um, that really results into gender-based violence. Um, we see that women also become stressed. They, they, they lose out on, on all the all the possibilities of, of, you know, standing up and saying there's no food because of this and this and that, or today there's no food, or you, you know, because of this and that, or we fail to get water. So how do we bridge the gap in make, to make women access these different resources at ease and also trying to bring the concept of why it's happening and their solution and whatever they're doing to adapt, you know, into context of what we are doing. So, we see most of these and many children actually, um, mainly the girls, as they are going to access um, firewood, as they, they are looking to into further places and getting water, you know, there are also other other factors that come into into play that we don't even see. For example, uh, we expect here, um, I've also really seen that most people are always questioning us, why girls for climate action, even boys, you know, this kind of narrative. but how we see it is that 
for example, if we have a boy and a girl and we do what they have to do before they go to school, if a girl is actually going to walk five kilometers to access water in the morning, very early in the morning, so that they prepare something to eat before they go to school, and the boy is just at home waiting for that so that they go to school, it means that this girl has gone through a whole lot of things before they went to school than a boy. So that is why we see, okay, how do we try to make sure even the girls are comfortable? They are not tired before they get into classrooms. They are all on the same page um, and trying to make sure that we ease life for them in regards to access to resources. I, I'd love to narrow it down a little bit and to dig into what Girls for Climate Action um, uh, is doing. Um, so you have this ambitious goal uh, to train over a thousand young women in climate policy and advocacy. And it's incredible that your organization has already trained more than 300 young women between the ages of 15 and 30. Um, but I'm curious to hear like a little bit more about what that training involves. Is it educational in focus? What what does that look like? Yeah, um, so one, uh, we've, we've tried as much as possible to target uh, young women and girls in communities that are are prone to climate change. It means that these girls have already seen things happen, just like the way Girls for Climate Action started. It 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 started from a point of I've experienced it. This is uh, turning into my reality, and it's an experience that I've gone through. So from that angle, how do we also engage as many young women as and girls as possible in trying to also change things in their own communities? So for that case, we've trained different young women and girls, and what it involves is that one, we do a lot of uh, mapping for them to understand where the problem is, what we call the eco mapping, to understand which um, ecosystems within your community are being threatened. And if they are being threatened, what is it that we can do and how are they going to be threatened? Who are the different stakeholders that we can target for these kind of things? And also, um, before we get into the eco mapping, we go through the climate science and ease it for them uh, through drama, through skits, through uh, painting and etc. and localizing the content itself. Because as we know, climate science is a very, um, most people here feel like it's a very um, elite kind of conversation. And yet it's it's a conversation that has a reality that falls into these different communities. And that is what we are fighting for. So it's a bit of what we do is try to break it down and make sure that the language that we speak is local language. They understand it, translating all of this material into the local language, making sure that as facilitators, we bring in skits, we bring in kind of music and singing and, you know, people coming together to know this is the you know, this is it without us complicating it as, as a science. Um, and so we do also eco-mapping, like I mentioned, uh, where they map out different ecosystems that are very important and how they are benefiting from them. It could be forests where they're getting some medicine, some food, firewood off the branches, attracting a few tourists here and there in that sense. It can be a wetland and what they're getting from it, because most of the communities here are getting a, a lot of medicinal benefits from tree from uh, different types of trees mainly the indigenous trees and the wetlands itself and all of these other things that they are getting from these different ecosystems so when they map them when they map them we are aware that they imagine this particular ecosystem disappearing and what the community would lose now it's from this that um they we we also now call out uh, who the stakeholders are 
and what we can how we can push them which different channels we can reach them and after that we now um you know uh, uh, give them certificates to know that you are now um a climate cop because we call them climate cops and now they carry on this conversation this advocacy within and outside the community and they're like they're like community organizers trying to be the watchdogs um to see that these particular ecosystems are not taken and if they are being threatened they don't call joanita from gas for climate action office but they know that they are gas for climate action and they can always decide on um kind of things that are threatening these particular ecosystems so most of the girls that we've engaged have been uh, one in bududa bududa is one of the of the districts that have faced a lot of landslides and they have been killing people um for a while now and the other is kasese where river nyamwamba has been flooding and during this flooding many communities many households have been pushed into a campsite and you know the situation there is also another another conversation, but trying to see that when River Nyamwamba floods, then what are we going to do? Uh, how do we hold um, leaders accountable? How do we make sure that um, even when we get to um, maybe humanitarian um, assistance or something like this, they also put other factors, for example, access to sexual reproductive health and rights, um, you know, all of these that that make girls comfortable uh, even during such a crisis. So, yeah, it's been that um, and also trying to engage as many communities, girls, young women as possible to be able to fight for the resources that they have in their communities and not wait for when they are being taken or they have been taken already to, to, to you know, um, give a voice on that. I, lo I love this concept of a, of a climate cop. That, that's, that's really great. And and that what you described as it seemed like a really powerful template for training and, and empowering young women to take action in this space. Uh, one one under, other undertaking uh, of Girls for Climate Action, as, as I understand it, is to transform um, and, and encourage uh, more young women to take leadership roles in local environmental committees. Um, and, and we know that women and girls can face unique challenges in, in taking climate action. So I'm hoping that you can share some of the challenges you've seen um, and then maybe the impact uh, you see when women take these leadership positions in these committees. Um, so um, since we, we started our leadership trainings, we've had a couple of girls take on uh, leadership on their local climate subcommittees. But <laughs> before we did this, nobody in the room even knew that the subcommittees are happening and they are there. One, I think it also showed how the, the local government works inseparably, if it's the right word to say, with the communities themselves. They don't know who is there, what is there, and what are they doing. Um, because when you introduce this concept of, of we have to be leaders in these subcommittees, and everyone's asking, what are the subcommittees? But we know they are there, and they are occupied by men because they are considering men-owned land, men have rights to access resources, men do this, and they're the ones that are leading the entire, you know, it, it, how can a woman start talking about land? because women here um, do not have rights to land. Um, and so most of them are actually having land because uh, maybe their father or their mother bought land and then when they're they passing on, they pass on the land to this person and they inherit this particular piece of land. But also if there was no 
if there is no son in the home and the, the, the sisters are the ones in a home, the sister is not, does not have the right to inherit this kind of land. The uncle comes, if the uncle has sons, the uncle inherits this land. So what you're trying to say is, how can we break, uh, dismantle this kind of systems that are limiting women from um, being part of these conversations, the processes, decision-making and et cetera. So when you get into communities, one, we, we tried as much as possible to, to engage cultural leaders uh, but two, we've also engaged local leaders before we engage the women. By the time we get into the community, the cultural leaders know us, the, the local leaders know us, and they know what we are going to talk about and what our suggestions would look like. So after this training in the local communities, it's easy to actually say uh, the woman should take on a certain role. So we've had a bit of change in that sense, and the women are always changing things in that regard. For example, um, there's a there's a forest that has been threatened that we are regarding as a common in in Buyengo in Jinja, and this is um, this is a forest that was taken over by a sugarcane company, a sugar company. And what has happened is that most of these owners of these are men, and they have bribed so many men in these committees to sign these documents. So what we've seen is that women are coming up to say, we are not going to accept this because we understand the importance of it, you know? So they are trying to change the narrative to what's right to do because you are more affected. This is what is right to do. And they're trying to change the system. They're trying to uh, initiate conversations that before they couldn't initiate on land. Um, and also they are pushing as much as possible to be part of the decision-making uh, processes and implementation as well. So in some communities, it has smoothly worked, but also in some communities, women are being threatened on these committees. One, uh, because they, um, they, if they don't threaten the woman, they're going to, to tell the husband, please tell your, your wife or tell, you know, to, to stop threatening people on the committee. Uh, and over and over again, they start tagging you into different things. They start threatening you. They start, you know, kind of these conversations that do not make um, the women comfortable to even come back to the committee. Um, and the narrative of you are just a woman and you can't be speaking about this. But we've tried to change that by engaging the cultural leaders first before we engage the women themselves and and um, empowering them or motivating them or strengthening their capacities in trying to take on these, these, these roles. And for committees where we've found women, actually, um, the, process, the process has been very easy in trying to engage even bigger communities or a large number of people because they make mobilization easy. They know why why we should do it and they really appreciate the work that, that we are doing. I think that's a really poignant illustration of how climate action is so intimately linked with political and social systems um, that are more equal and more inclusive. So your organization has also created something called Climate Demonstration Hubs, which engage women and girls and youth more generally in smart technologies for climate action. And one of the projects uh, in particular that caught my eye is focused on developing energy saving stoves for rural women and girls. Could you tell us more about these hubs? How do they operate? Uh, how do they engage women and youth in climate action and knowledge sharing? 
Yeah, um, so the climate demonstration hubs are, I would say, spaces where young women, girls, youth come to think through the different local climate challenges first and then what solutions that they can create to solve these local climate challenges. Most of the times we are basing on which knowledge they already have and how do we turn that knowledge into scalable solutions uh, towards adaptation. So the climate demonstration hubs uh, are these spaces and through the climate demonstration hubs, we carry out our green premiership training and this takes nine weeks. So women are taken through the nine weeks of training. One, um, the, the training goes into a mindset change, the first session. And then two, we have the same on problem uh, identification, the local climate challenges, then solutions and et cetera. And then also figuring out how we can make an income out of these solutions. Because like I mentioned in the beginning, um, through the work that we are doing, women are saying uh, before they were saying, for us, the problem is this, the problem is poverty. Now we want to see how from all the solutions that you have, how can you create solutions where you can also earn a living at the end of the day? Because then we are eliminating limited resources, but also we are all, we are promoting independence of these women and also trying to protect the planet as well. So women are pushing as much as possible because they know that they are solving two things. They are gaining from this uh, to be independent, but also they are saving the planet. So for these solutions that they make, we make sure that they can scale them to different communities, uh, both at the community level and the national level and, and uh, looking for markets for them and their products and services. So by the end of the training, women are able to sell, women are able to, to have a working business model that they can work with. And also they are able to present their ideas because every after nine weeks, we have a pitch event where they come and pitch their ideas in their local languages and present what they are doing. And in this space, we bring different uh, local uh, leaders that can support their businesses to boost them as well, but also recognize the importance of, of green businesses. And also for, for, for us, we think it's also a learning process for the audience as they try to appreciate the different ideas or problem of businesses that are coming out of here. And from these, we try as much as possible to make sure that the women can also have exchange programs to go and learn from other areas, other communities, and see what they are also doing um, in their own community and how they're solving different challenges. Um, so from this also, they are able to replicate some of the solutions that they are creating. For example, when the women started making the, the local energy saving stoves, which they are not using any coin to actually make, they are now building these stoves for schools. They are building these stoves for hospitals. They're building and get pay, paid for it. One, um, they are spreading the news of, we have to act on climate, need to change something, reduce the, the number of, of wood that we are using to prepare food for children. But now we need to use the energy saving stoves and they educate uh, schools why we should do that. And so they are replicating this in as many households. In a week, the women can build over 200 stoves 
in different communities in different households so this is what you're doing but also we have biointensive gardens where they are using a very small piece of land because like i mentioned in the beginning they only own very small pieces of land and with their way of how they were farming before they could get very little yields but right now they just need small paddocks and off the small paddock they can get over 200 uh, stems of carrots and etc and then they can sell that um, and so they, every woman is actually having a few paddocks in their small piece of land and having massive yields. And from this, they can sell to uh, nearer markets. They can eat health meals and also they can spread the, the information. And um, the women have also shared uh, because a few women were using uh, different pesticides to spray in their gardens. But right now they're using organic pesticides to make sure that they can use their available resources where they don't even incur any shilling to make sure that they make um, these different uh, pesticides to chase away pests and diseases organically without using the chemicals that affect our environment. Um, we also have those that are creating water pans that um, where the problem was mainly drought for farmers and they're creating water pans where women can uh, get water year in and out to make sure that they they um, irrigate their different farms. Um, most of it is has been mainly about uh, plastics where they're also doing a lot in, in, in recycling plastic and what they can use out of it, for example, making jewelry, making bags, making sandals, etc. Um, and also different, different work that uh, every cohort of, of, of young women and girls and youth and women bring into the space every after, um, yeah, every after each cohort. It's, it's really inspiring to hear about these really impressive success stories um, that you're having with in your work with the climate demonstration hubs. And, and in addition to your work with those hubs, you're an, you're an ambassador at the Africa Youth Climate Hub, an organization that connects young leaders from across the continent. And actually ECSP uh, just published a report that highlighted just how important Africa's youth are for the future of our world, but also more specifically to achieving a global green economy and to taking climate action. Uh, so, I mean, in this context of you know, massive potential on the continent for you know, a real kind of global scale change, does your engagement with, you know, maybe even the climate demonstration hubs, but also the Africa Youth Climate Hub, does that, does that leave you hopeful for the future of climate action and adaptation in Africa? Or do you see some challenges down the road? Yeah, I think um, I recognize that so many uh, eco-innovations or greenpreneurs, ecopreneurs, I would say, are coming off uh, the continent. But I think, um, yeah, my work with the Africa Climate Hub has also been amazing, where we are getting more, mainly also young people that are innovating in the space of climate and environment. And I would say that uh, there are quite a number of innovations that have come through. But I think the biggest problem has always been about each innovation seeing its first birthday. Um, and for us to see that first birthday means that there is need for a lot of support in regards to mentorship, in regards to resources, because most of the investors have not yet realized the importance of investing in green businesses 
and they're still focusing on mainly what where can I get the money? Where is the profit in a way? And we also know that many of the green businesses um are businesses that take a while to kind of make sales, I would say. And so there's need for patience to make sure that um that comes into reality. But most of the greenpreneurs, ecopreneurs have faced the challenge of lacking people to trust them that things are going to work. And therefore, what happens is that they give up easily. So for me, the challenge that I've seen over time is trusting that green businesses will work and can change the narrative, can change the status quo, and really investing in these early stage ecopreneurs to know that whatever they are building is contributing to, 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 to the bigger uh, global impact and not just them not um, being supported at the end of the day. So the challenge has always been about funding, um, mentorship. Um, yeah, I think these, these are the core things that, that, that I've realized. Same with our women. You know, most of these women cannot even write, you know, and most of the applications are online. They don't have access to internet. You know, so at the end of the day, how does this woman in a rural community working on something that is scalable going to access a funder online, you know? And so if we cannot, as Girls for Climate Action, give them access to these kinds of resources, then they, they cannot do that. But also as an organization, I would say there's not a lot of support, you know, but if we're really supported, it means that we can reach out to as many um, businesses that have been started and see them grow and give them all the mentorship as possible, connect them to different hubs, both in country, outside of the country, to see that their businesses grow and some of their um, ideas are taken on and invested in and get to even bigger funding. So for me, the, the challenge has always been about how do we even help better the ecopreneurs that are not having access to technology, that are not having access to the funders online, that are not having access to a town or city where all these funders are, that, you know, does not even know English, you know. So for me, it has always been about, you know, making this very easy for, for ecopreneurs. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to wrap up our conversation today, thinking about how to support eco-entrepreneurs the need for mentorship, and what you said about investors needing to have a kind of long view, uh, recognizing the time that it takes to get these innovations off the ground and to scale them up. Um, and I also just wanted to say I really appreciate and find inspiring how you connect the grassroots level action up to policy and systemic change. I think that's an inspiring and an important way to think about this kind of work. So it was really wonderful to hear about all of these examples, and uh, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you. So thank you so much. Yeah, it, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you, Johnita, and hearing more about your work with Girls for Climate Action, and also looking more broadly at the intersection of gender, climate adaptation through the lens of your really, truly incredible work. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much, and uh, yeah, I appreciate it. You've been listening to the new security broadcast at the Wilson Center. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, follow us on Twitter at New Security Beat and visit newsecuritybeat.org.